Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, and welcome to the Conology the podcast that dreams of the work of one of the world's greatest anime filmmakers, Satoshi Kon. I'm Michael Leader. And I'm Steph Watts, and we've seen the lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm in a bind. So join us on our quest into the world of Satoshi Kon. So, Michael, in in much quicker fashion than when we covered Studio Ghibli, uh, we've we've reached the end of our journey in a way on this mini series about Satoshi Kon. It's end of term once more, Jake. Let's get out the toys. Let's have a big party. <laughs> so yeah. this is Paprika, Satoshi Kon's sadly his last film that was that was released, and to many people his most popular. Um, so this or Perfect Blue seems to be the one that most people have heard of or seen. Um, Steph, was this maybe the first one you saw? Uh, no, the first one I saw was Perfect Blue. Mm-hmm. And then I'm trying to think when I actually watched this, um, probably in a weird jumble along with the rest of them, definitely right. not in the order that we've been watching them now. Um, but I think as we're going to get into, this is really benefits from watching it last after kind of seeing all of his other movies and I think it really impacted me this time watching it that way it was such a wild card for me this was one I I saw many years ago and haven't rewatched in in, in many years and have as I've said on previous episodes rewatched Millennium Actress rewatched Tokyo Godfather's Perfect Blue's always been a perennial favorite so I was always maybe a a little hesitant to go back to this one I I don't I don't didn't know what I was going to find when you're delving into your dreams, you never know what's going to come up. So I'm really excited to talk about this one. So I guess we should just start dreaming, right? As always, these films are very complex. In order to tackle them, we're going to have to go completely spoiler heavy. If that's something that you care about, you can go and watch the film. We'll still be here when you come back. This one is not as gnarly as some of the other ones, but there might be some very strange imagery that we discuss, so a bit of content warning there. But we will have a little bit of help from Steph up next with a bit of a synopsis. When 
When a machine that allows therapists to enter their patients' dreams to treat them is stolen, all hell breaks loose and Tokyo is taken over by a dream world. Only the red-haired dream detective, Paprika, can stop it. So you two both just said there that you have never watched these films in order. This is very much a, a first time adventure for all of us in that respect. Um, and so what's been really nice throughout all of these episodes has been tracking the story of Satoshi Khan through his work and learning how he's got to all of these points in his career. And that, now we've kind of reached the, the last one, I suppose, or at least the last completed feature. Uh, Michael, what's happening between paranoia agent the tv series and paprika well actually as with tokyo godfathers and paranoia agent con lines up this production to almost overlap with the end of paranoia agent he's very much gearing up to, to start on it so he can dive straight into paprika of course though let's have a bit of a flashback we've been talking about paprika a few times um, in these context sections of course he wanted to adapt it into a feature straight after perfect blue but the budget or the opportunity just didn't arise. Let's give a bit of context about Paprika first. So this is a novel written by Yasutaka Tsutsui, um, who anime fans may know. He also wrote uh, The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, which was made into a film by Mamoru Hosoda, as well as got adapted many times over the years. But he is a very influential, long-standing sci-fi fantasy writer in Japan, very influential on Satoshi Kon. And here's a quote that I found in Andrew Osman's book from Satoshi Kon about Paprika. I read the novel when it was published and it made me want to incorporate the theme of dreams fusing with reality into my movies. So that's what I did with Perfect Blue and Millennium Actress. Now I've made the source of my inspiration into its own film, I've Got Some Closure. I won't abandon this topic, but I feel like I've reached a certain goal. So he gets to this point now where almost the book inspired his style, and now he finally gets to adapt the, the book into a film that uses that style that was inspired by the book <laughs> that he then uh, perfected in other films. It's like a really interesting closed loop of a movie. Um, another interesting point that I found in the research here is that uh, Paprika was serialized in the Japanese edition of uh, Marie Claire magazine, The Ladies Mag. Interesting. But how did this project finally come to Con? You've got this interesting back and forth where Satoshi Kon is dropping Satsui's names as an influence when he's making Perfect Blue, when he's making Millennium Actress. Then on the other side, Satsui had seen Millennium Actress and became convinced that the guy who made that film is the only person with the imagination, visual imagination, strong enough to adapt Paprika. So they finally come together and say, let's work together. Let's make this film together. He's been dubbed by the author as the only guy for the job. And Andrew Osmond puts it really well um, using a quote from Khan saying it had to be destiny that Paprika would be made by him. Now when it came to actually adapting the book Khan sought to capture its spirit rather than do a faithful by the letter adaptation of the plot and to do that he worked again with Seishi Minakami who he co-wrote Paranoia Agent with and luckily because Tsutsuri had dubbed him the only man for the job um, he was given free reign by the author and there's another quote in Andrew Osman's book where Tsutsui says, 
If Khan didn't do as he pleased, I don't think the story would have taken advantage of the anime format. Regurgitating the novel is boring. That's a quote for us to use whenever anyone talks about radical adaptations, I guess. (laughs) And perhaps fittingly for a film that's so packed with dream imagery and dream logic, Khan started with the visuals they had in mind when approaching the adaptation and almost fitted the story around those ideas, visual ideas that he had. And he also started the storyboards before he'd finished the screenplay. He'd started sketching what the film would look like shot by shot before he'd even really know how it would end, which sounds a little bit like our pal Hayao Miyazaki, isn't it? Uh, We'd said before how Khan's films had been so well-structured and neat, these tight, compact stories. And he said by this point, he wanted to break out of that safe and tidy tendencies he'd had on previous films. Um, So it results in a film that is a bit of a trip. And particularly once you get into the third act, it's quite hard to keep a handle on the plot, maybe. But it's better to think of it more as a trip into the, the in, into the mind of Satoshi Khan, or as he describes it in a quote that Andrew Osmond also has, something of a roller coaster ride. And Khan says, "What's fun about a roller coaster is not that you understand the angles it turns or its rate of acceleration, but that it's fun and you enjoy it. And if you have a very odd, interesting, or curious dream, and you wake up a little dazed." then it makes you think about why you had such a dream. So he wanted to to maintain the sense of a thrill ride, but then also a ride that did confuse you a little, so you'd maybe think on it a little more. Because if you have too tied in ending, you think, that's what this film was, that's what this film told me, the end. And I suppose we've that's been a theme throughout this whole podcast, is you know, there are so many ways to read these films, talk about these films, discuss these films, watch them over and over again. And Jake, I can't wait for you to re-watch some of them. I'd love to send that quote to Martin Scorsese and see what he thinks. <laughs> <laughs> now, premiere. Differently to all the films we've discussed so far, Paprika sort of levels up in terms of its festival premiere. It premieres in September 2006 at the Venice Film Festival, You know, one of those big four or five film festivals throughout the year where the, sort of the big art house films are, are, are premiered. So really, by this point, Con was graduating into the big leagues. And just to list a few of the films that also um, premiered that, that year, not saying that all these are great, but they're certainly these films that defined 2006 into 2007. You have The Queen, you have Children of Men, The Fountain, Darren Aronofsky, uh, Zsa Zsanka's Still Life, which won the Golden Lion that year, Apichatpong, Where Ethical Syndromes in a Century, another film that we love from that era, David Lynch's Inland Empire. So he's almost now being put alongside many of the filmmakers we've said have influenced him over the years. And, you know, I I shouldn't really miss the opportunity to say that also premiering, I think, out of competition at Venice that year was a little film by a guy called Miyazaki called Tales from Earthsea. Oh, I wonder what Ursula Le Guin would have to say about that quote about regurgitating the novel is just boring. (laughs) I mean, unfortunately, we can't ring her up. But that's a really good question, Jake. So the film comes out in Japan later in 2006, and then in 2007 has a theatrical release in the States and a DVD release in the UK. So because of that, it has like a whole wave of reviews. You can go on Rotten Tomatoes. It has a really strong, fresh rating, but also reviews from all the major outlets. 
really praising this film. I mean, some of them having maybe a little bit of uh, sort of uh, snobby tendencies, saying that this this is elevating beyond anime. It's not your usual anime. It's full of thoughts and visual imagination. Like clearly, they've not watched much anime. But it's really great to see critics of the caliber of the New Yorker, David Denby or Manola Dargis, you know, really tussling with this sort of film and coming out positively. I should I should mention. I love the tagline for the US release of this film. Um, I think it's simultaneously the, the best tagline, but also the most cringeworthy one possible. And it's, this is your brain on anime. <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, it, that is awful. It's awful. It's referring to the 80s anti-drugs campaign, this is your brain on drugs. I guess, but it's also so dated and of its time. You can imagine that being a very post-Matrix kind of uh, tagline. I'd love to be in the room when the miniature Don Draper pitched that tagline <laughs> at, uh, at Sony. This is like if Gaspar Noe was like, guys, I've got a new, I've got a new tagline for my film. <laughs> Here it is. Oh yeah, absolutely. The next Gaspar Noe is gonna, just going to be, this is your brain on Noe. <laughs> But if you think back to our Tale of Princess Kaguya episode, which was the last time we covered the last film by a filmmaker before they died, in the context I sort of told the rest of the story. Of course, there is a story after Paprika for Satoshi Kon, but I think we'll cover that in our next episode, which is our wrap-up mailbag tribute episode. Because for now, Steph and Jake, I want to hear about what your brains were like on Paprika. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, Jake, we've started every review section, I think, with talking about the opening of each film. And this one also feels like a great opportunity to do that. So I guess let's dive in from the very start. And what do we kind of recognise from uh, the earlier work of Satoshi Kon's that we've seen so far what seems different yeah what's um, going on 
So as with all of these, he, he makes it very evident that we're watching a Satoshi Kon film uh, and, and this more than more than any other before, it, I think. And uh, because of the, the dreamlike nature of the narrative, I suppose we, we are more forgiving for when someone might want to um, bend the creativity to themselves. And although we've picked up on stylistic hangovers from his previous works whether that's in the the design or in the edit or in the in the nature of the storytelling here we're actually seeing i think direct references to his other works prior to this we have an opening scene uh, with a magician um, who says it's the greatest showtime and i was ready for him to whip his cane down and I was already going, oh, um, <laughs> sadly, we, I know Satoshi Kon has predicted a lot of the future, but he, he could not predict The Greatest Showman. Um, so that sadly didn't happen. But of course, this was a performance within a dream and that dream gets ripped back into reality. And uh, we see that this is all being controlled or dictated by paprika uh within the mind of this detective and then we, we go into these opening titles and this is where i suddenly start seeing these things that not only are we seeing this storytelling that's familiar we're seeing these images that are familiar and so from perfect blue we've got these mirror shots and this kind of skipping light dance through town that paprika does as if no one else is taking any notice of her from paranoia agent we've got the blurring of traffic going in front of her from Millennium Actress, you've got this montage of films that the detective's dream clashes through. Uh, from Tokyo Godfathers, for me at least, Miyuki looks incredibly like Paprika. If you took her hat off, they've got mm-hmm. same hair, same eyes. And then we've got these these in-world titles. And so all of this is happening within what the first five minutes of it. And more so than any of the others, I suppose, this is so recognisably a Satoshi Kon film. It's really incredible. I think that I've probably said this on every episode so far, but the opening what, 15, 20 minutes of this film is just some of the best filmmaking in, in my mind. The, the, the sense of you know, being lured into this world, not knowing where it's going to go, whether you're in a dream, whether you're in reality, the visual uh, imagination here on display, the first time you see that corridor shot, the first time you see someone falling through a dream into into waking is is astonishing. But I love so much of that opening scene, well, the, 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 the scene of uh, Paprika going through town and she's moving from person to person from screen to screen and popping up and just touching all these lives in little ways when she puts the jacket over the sleeping guy working late in the office asleep at his computer when well you mentioned how it's very similar to the opening titles for paranoia agent where she's standing at the crossroads and the traffic is flowing all around her the sort of amazing i mean i'm going to go galaxy brain a few times at this point but the fact that she stops the traffic already shows you that you're in a different world to Paranoia Agent, which looked at the city, looked at the modern world as something potentially toxic, potentially a source of anguish and anxiety. 
maybe it's the music, maybe it's her outlook, maybe it's the way that she's animated and voiced, but Paprika is in control of that. She stops the traffic around her, whereas in the Paranoia Agent only titles, they were being subsumed by that. And already you're on you're on this path where you're thinking, this is taking on board everything about Paranoia Agent stylistically, the world around her, the visual imagination, but maybe it's a little bit more optimistic. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I, compared to Perfect Blue, we're seeing uh, an, an inner personality in Paprika that is cooperative, that wants to help. And we're seeing someone who exists through screen media uh, a lot of the time through adverts and using those adverts to, again, assist and drive the plot in a in a positive way. And we're not trying to kind of break and fragment a person like we might in Paranoia Agent or in Perfect Blue. We're actually trying to support that. And although we're getting all of these stylistic things that we absolutely recognize from all of those other works, tonally, this feels like he's gone in a more positive direction. Yeah, it's surprising how... um how different that kind of phantom figure skipping through the streets, how different that can be with a change in surrounding and a slight change in music, like where it's really creepy and unsettling in Perfect Blue. It's actually really uplifting and kind of freeing in this, in the opening. Yeah, and I I think that we might imagine that this with that tagline of this is your brain on anime and that it's going to be about getting in inside people's dreams and that it's from the mind of the guy that made perfect blue that this is all going to be quite nightmarish stuff and it's going to be absolutely getting in and twisting your melon and although it it does do that it's it's not as scary as i anticipated it to be there is there is um like horrible imagery at points like pushing your hand inside someone's body and breaking them apart and stuff like that um but i suppose i was expecting more in the darren aronofsky world uh and it's more like a jodorowsky (laughs) i like the rhyming you've brought in there jake i love how we're still talking in terms of western feature filmmaking and that's completely there as you said in this opening and we should take a quick moment to talk about cinema in this of course where paprika is having her therapy sessions with the detective is in a cinema you have that amazing fake out where she's applauding a cinema screen on which his dream is happening It's then threaded through his whole story. Again, we have a detective who has to go deep within himself and come to some sort of moment of clarity in order to crack the case, like with Paranoia Agent. But I I, I love how, whereas we said in our Millennium Actress episode that he was creating this tapestry that was a tribute to Japanese cinema, and he felt himself in in interviews that he had to learn about that. Japanese cinema wasn't necessarily his home base. I feel in this one he's throwing a lot of maybe references that are closer to him on screen. You have, you know, just, you mentioned the quick montage of in the, the de- detective's dream that we keep going back to. We have um, the greatest show on earth, the, um, the, the big circus epic 
in the golden age of Hollywood. You have um, Roman Holiday. You have a scene that's never explicitly said that it's a James Bond scene, but it's a scene from, from Russia with Love where he's being garroted on the train. All, all these references just being thrown at the screen, plus, of course, that the scene where the detective slips into being, for a moment, either Akira Kurosawa or cosplaying as Akira Kurosawa with the, <laughs> the hat and glasses, talking about the, the uh, 180 degree line of cutting, which I know you love, Jake, whenever a film go, becomes a little bit of a cinema essay, a cinema history yeah, essay. And, yeah, and deploying a proper Microsoft PowerPoint 2004 transition at that point as well <laughs> to flip the screen around. That moment makes me think of Fight Club and the way that David Fincher would stop the the action of the narrative and you'd have Brad Pitt, ex, or, well, whoever it is at that point, Ed Norton or Brad Pitt, explaining the cigarette burn in the top corner of the screen and it would be done in these overlay graphics, a little bit of a little bit of film trivia, little tidbits take home with you. Yeah, well, um, I think that's our second mention of David Fincher as well uh, in Paranoia Agent that we spoke about those intertitle cards feeling very much of that '90s Fincher feel. Yeah, and with the 180 degree line, it actually breaks that line way before it's actually explained. I think it's when the older guy is kind of descending into this dream rant um there's a a shot that breaks that line and where you're a bit kind of like oh hang on what what's happened there that was a weird cut and then it's kind of explained later um i just really love that it's kind of doing that and then talking about it as well and i think it really has a lot of love for cinema and like con's love for for cinema coming through um especially that moment where the detective kind of pushes his face through the actual cinema screen is <laughs> like a reverse of that that kind of famous story of um people going to watch a train on the screen in the cinema and then getting scared because they thought it was gonna come through the screen it's like the reverse of that that'll yeah. be me when i go back to the cinema eventually <laughs> just pushing my face through through the screen well <laughs> that 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 moment and a, a number of other moments involving screens certainly made me thought uh, that I wonder if he, he had been watching Videodrome before this as well, because that, that famous image of the screen coming out and grabbing you and pulling you into it, which like, Cronenberg uses in a very much a horror manifestation. Here, it's like the, the, warm, the warm embrace that cinema can give you. <laughs> that, that sequence with the, the 180 degree line took me all the way back to reading Bordwell and Thompson's Phil Martin introduction, which is like the key text that you read at university, and that in their section on the hundred eighty-three line, they have David Lynch saying, "You can do whatever you want in cinema, but never break that line." And I love that David Lynch wouldn't dare break it, but Con would, <laughs> <laughs> and he'll tell you he's doing it while he's doing it. It's almost like a—I mean, God, it's a overworked expression, but he's like a jazz musician showing you the melody and then warping it at the same time. But of course, we've now mentioned Cronenberg, Aronofsky, Fincher, Lynch. I mean, I suppose the big Hollywood name we've not mentioned so far in the review is little Chrissy, Christopher Nolan, uh, yes. with his large formats and his big ideas. People say that that Inception rips off this film. I know, Jake, as a, as a newcomer, and, and that's all you knew about this film, do you think that's a fair allegation to make? I, I was really expecting it to be a lot heavier in the rip-off quality, the way that people talk about it. Um, and I just think that 
Satoshi Kon and Christopher Nolan were interested in in a mechanism that would allow you to get inside people's dreams. That that was the thing they were interested in, and the way that they use that is entirely different. And I'm sure prior to this, you could find examples of the idea of getting inside people's dreams. But it's because I think when the the dialogue is there as a subtitle in front of you and you see a line like, the dream was projected into his subconscious without him knowing. If you're a big fan of Paprika and four years later you go and watch Inception, you're going to think what a glaring ripoff. But other than that bit of tech, the DC Mini that allows the process to start, beyond that like nolan's got two and a half hours and is doing something entirely different with what he's doing with his 90 minutes because satoshi Kon is he's actually interested in the dream he's interested in in what we know as dreams and dream logic and visuals and the plot is beside the point whereas christopher nolan is interested in making a big heist film and when you think about it the dreams within Inception aren't actually that imaginative. It's it's a city or a fortress or a beach or a building. Uh, they're not totally wild spaces. And I know he got Ellen Page to draw a map and say that that's why this is a, a dream fortress or something. But it could be any other building. Whereas the landscape in Paprika is absolutely not anything that could be described as plain or boring when christopher nolan makes a frog parade the frogs playing clarinets that's when we know he's truly riffing off uh the films but yeah i agree and i think that kind of i think con captures so well just that state of like falling into a dream and just the the logic like as you're falling asleep you'll be thinking of something and then suddenly you'll just kind of go off track because you like because you're falling asleep and i think he captures that that slip from reality into dreams so well in this. Whereas in Inception, it's very kind of, you know, when you've transferred to the dream. Oh yeah. And and everyone within Inception is extremely alert and are very aware of how all the landscape works around them and how they can interact with this. And that that's not how a dream would work. It, it can bend and flex all the time. Uh, and just uh, around you as the dreamer and that, that that's what I found so exciting about watching Paprika and I, I will get into the plot but I, I kind of left that aside after about 20 minutes and very happily just as you say Steph just kind of let myself into it and just embrace it. I think the other you you, you quoted that line Jake which is basically the whole point of that, that that is basically an inception isn't it planting mm. a dream into someone's consciousness the the other sequence that people point to as being similar to inception is that corridor scene and i think it show, it completely shows up the different approaches to dreams that nolan and con have that the reason why joseph gordon levitt is running on walls in that corridor scene is it's because they're in a car in the dream above them that is flying off its wheels and that's just that's destabilizing the dream in in a gravity sense whereas what destabilizes dreams in con's view is psychology it's the actual mystery of our own identities and 
that's what I mean. This isn't a the Inception podcast. Um, it's not a novelology, but that's what disappoints me about Inception, and that's what completely intrigues me about Paprika. The fact that also I fell off my sofa, um, so I, so I need to mention this that the DC Mini is uh, talked about as the key to the mystery of dreams. <laughs> so there's another key coming back. Kong likes coming back to those, as we mentioned with uh, Millennium Actress. Um, and also Toka Godfathers starts with a key. Um, but then if if we can say that, as we've said, like the key in any of these things doesn't actually matter. Mm-hmm. And if the key in this is the thing that allows us to enter dreams, it that is him saying, it doesn't matter. Just this is what I want to do. Just let yourself enter these dreams for 90 minutes and get out again. And that that's what he wants to do with it. And... He, he also, even in a film like this, which is so rooted in a dream world, will throw in a casual couple of lines of dialogue with what, that show that he's ahead of everybody in terms of his social commentary, where he, he, there's a comparison between dreams and the internet, which is where we, you know, the unfiltered, unconscious uh, mind is allowed to vent, which is exactly what Twitter is, I guess. <laughs> and this, this was released years before the popularization of Twitter. Yeah, and, and and those two guys that are within the internet that also allow someone to access the shared dream space. Um, I, I, I did for a moment think, so the DC Mini lets some people enter dreams, but also if you literally just go onto this website, you can also do the same thing. And then I thought, I, I'm, I'm questioning this too much. and uh, And maybe... A few watches down the line, I, I would get how maybe that does actually make sense, and all of this does come together. Um, but you two, having now watched this multiple times, do you feel like the, the plot is there? And if it is, is that needed? Well, I feel like yeah, you start off with that kind of um, the DC mini has been stolen. We need to get it back. What's the like who are we chasing who is the culprit type thing that goes on for a little bit and it's kind of spread out but then I guess what we're returning to um as we were with Millennium Actress is this kind of exploration of memory and cinema and that kind of chasing of something that you can't quite reach um and yeah that kind of link between dreams and cinema and I guess the internet as well that it Ugh. it just feels like yeah you kind of start with this plot you start with the key and then it just kind of spirals out into um ideas that con's having and wants to like get into in the film i wonder if that comes from his coming straight off of paranoia agent which as we mentioned in our episode starts with about three or four episodes that set you up for what the procedural is and what the plot actually is and then it just veers off for the re- <laughs> remainder of it. And then in the last 10 minutes of the last episode, tells you, oh no, here's actually what happened uh, mm-hmm. and tries to make some sense of it. Uh, and it's in that veering off that we said in Paranoia Agent, that's where we had the most fun and that's where he has the most fun. And you get that in that in the bulk of Paprika when he's really just letting loose. And it's so thrilling to watch. Yeah, and it feels like as well... I'm really glad that we watched Paranoia Agent in this series because this does have so many connections to it and it feels like 
he has like some of the ideas in Paranoia Agent we talked about on that episode that series being this kind of draw of ideas that um he was kind of dipping into and then some of these things like I guess the detective um and the kind of unsolved case um Paprika is a kind of split personality um they feel like these ideas that he's had and he's done in a kind of 20 minute tv episode but he's kind of digging into more now so that was really great to see those things coming back all the way through everything we've watched i i really hope that the context for this episode and the previous episodes all feed into explaining a little bit of why paprika is the way that it is so with paranoia agent he saw the elongated multi-episode format as as an experiment in storytelling and jumping between protagonists and just having a deep dive in one story per episode or doing a complete experimentation in one episode but of course he wasn't storyboarding all of that and paprika he wanted to storyboard that himself before writing it before fully writing it so it the, the if storytelling and experimenting with him, his storytelling voice was the you know the impulse behind pa- paranoia agent for paprika it's his visual imagination that he wants to explore and this is gosh, packed full of so many visual moments. But also, I suppose, in terms of the question of do we care about the plot? Do we really, once all these resolutions come towards the back end, you know, the the romance between, the, you know, uh, At-Chan and, uh, uh, and, her co- and her colleague, or the, the way that it, the actual conflict resolves, do we care by that point? And are we instead going along with the roller coaster ride? Um, Andrew, I think, in his book, Andrew Osmond, um, alleges that you know some of those re- resolutions were sort of done on the fly, um, you know, that he was working out the ending as he was writing it, and that's almost a little bit, you know, that that harks back to some of our Ghibli episodes, I suppose, and why some of Miyazaki's endings um, seem so pat or too convenient or out of nowhere. Um, but all that does is shows that he's really indulging and experimenting and flexing his muscles um, visually. And there are so many moments that come to mind in this film, maybe more in, within this one film than in everything we've done so far, just visual moments that, that resonate. And I wonder whether we could highlight a couple. Yeah, it's quite funny when you, if, if you are searching for a GIF online, and you type in Satoshi Kon. <laughs> the top five of those are probably going to be one of looking through the window in perfect blue, and then the rest are going to be from this. Because it's it's so good at just being able to condense an impactful moment into that single frame. So, Steph, you're a big frog fan. I'm sure that there's, there's there's a recurring frame in this that you're a big fan of. Frog Parade. I think, yeah, we mentioned earlier, but yeah, such a great image. Um, I hope my dreams are like that. Just lots of flog, frogs playing instruments. Um, but yeah, that kind of dream parade sequence as just an image of kind of all of this stuff from your subconscious coming together. Um especially all of the little um, porcelain dolls kind of saluting are really creepy and really kind of stick with you. And that imagery coming back later in the film as well. Um, there's some really good kind of 
visual motifs that he's playing on throughout. Yeah, I mean, f- for me, there's stuff like the I mentioned already the the hand being penetrating the body and then ripping all the way through it and then out through the face and the shell within paprika. I think that's brilliant. I think there's that the giant porcelain doll's face appearing across the glass walkway uh the lads on the top of the roof just like synchronized swimmers falling (laughs) off the edge of it so much of this is so memorable and i don't i i think it's incredibly rare for a director to get away with a film where they have put this first put their visual first and for critics to come out of it and think yep that's fine (laughs) we're okay with that um and i think that that goes show just how arresting his his craft of imagery is yeah the the, the ones that jump out for me i mean the, the 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 hand sequences that's cronenberg body horror isn't it we're having a hand push through your body but then still you know make an impression all the way through, but also the way that it is seen as skeezy Rongan pulling the paprika out of Atco. It, it really kind of violent imagery without showing the violence that we've seen in, in previous ones. It's purely dream logic violence. I also love at the, probably the most complex moment in the film, which is when they're trying to describe how the delusion, the, the core frog parade delusion is starting to glom onto all these other dreams and co- you know, consciousness that's, that's going out in the world and is bringing the real world into it. it they, they talk about how you know, all of these multiple dream streams come together and he just zooms in on a windscreen in the rain as they're driving and you see multiple paths of raindrops coming together into one long, uh, long like, torrent of rain. And that's just a really nice, simple visual explanation of what's going on that gets beyond the actual mechanics, the hard sci-fi of what's actually going on here, which I imagine is how Christopher Nolan would have tried to do it. Uh, go and watch Interstellar to see how he tries to turn you know schematize something un- unknowable and explainable but that shows that con is still innovating at every visual level all the way through and it's just oh, amazing it's such a good um example of that kind of show don't tell style of filmmaking um and just that yeah you can have that kind of the raindrops on the window or you can have um paprika being kind of opened up to reveal Atsuko inside like instead of telling us like what that means you can just look at it and you kind of you can know like what is going on there with the kind of the split between those two characters and stuff like that is um it's really kind of economic Mm -hmm. um and like really powerful in just using those visuals um, instead of just kind of giving us loads and loads of words to explain what he's trying to convey. And and the way that he uses media and the way he understands the 21st century mind, the way that 
we can flip to, we can almost use screens as a way to instantaneously transport ourselves from one place to another. That's literally what Paprika does. In that massive dream sequence at the end, when they jump into the TV to come out of the camera filming the shots on the other side, or she jumps into a billboard and comes off an, an, another advert elsewhere, it just shows how time and space has just been collapsed in on itself by the modern cacophony, but it's done as a way that we can control it. We can use it to our advantage rather than Paranoia Agent, which saw it as a, as a source of anguish. So we hadn't watched these films chronologically before. And when we finally got to The Wind Rises and Princess Kaguya, we could, and we saw all of these echoes in their previous films. And that's what we see here. And we should talk about the, where it ends, where, where Paprika and the detective have their final meeting. A multiplex showing Con's films. <laughs> <laughs> I think this this ending is is wonderful. And you, you considering it is his last film or last feature film, it is just stunning that he ends this way. And obviously he he doesn't know what's going to happen to him but it feels like he does and it's surprisingly gentle con considering everything that's come before it you've got this setup of this mega kaiju fight that's going to destroy the city but it, it that goes off in a way that you're really not expecting it to and maybe it's because none of us have been to the cinema in six months <laughs> but the prospect of getting through all of this horribleness in this life that he's gone through and that at the end of it he can let all of that go he's got through all of that and finally he can go to the cinema i i yeah i got a got a little teary at that prospect <laughs> yeah i definitely agree and i think even though i guess he's kind of teasing his next project with the dreaming kids dream machine uh, which he never finished, this does feel like a really definite conclusion, at least to the ideas that he's been working through all through kind of Perfect Blue, Millennium Actress and Paranoia Agent, at least. Um, and it's such a good kind of closing the loop on all of that kind of exploration of dream and memory um, and how kind of cinema relates to that and how that can be actually portrayed through film it's yeah a really surprisingly final conclusion and what a flex really to end <laughs> your film with go to the cinema maybe to see my movies if that's really i mean that's one more cynical way of looking at it but maybe it's because we've found such a searching human quality through all his films developing and through Paranoia Agent, that we're able to see that as just, it's all about cinema. Cinema is the realm of dreams. And that's why we go to, well, that's why we look at cinema. It's going all the way back to Millennium Actress, that you know, what happens between us as the spectator, the, 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 the camera that's, that's recording, but then also the projector that's projecting onto the screen is this magic where we create this shared consciousness, this shared memory. And that is something that needs to be celebrated. So in a way, does that, that make Paprika, the character, an embodiment of cinema? Because she is the one who allows us to transport into them. 
And so they, it's so optimistic and so positive because it is him crafting this narrative about the value that cinema has. So, yeah, so cinema and everything that Paprika represents is that little spice. I mean, that's actually a line in there, isn't it? That's what she brings. It's a little added mm. spice to our life, which ends, you know, it's, it, it is the flip of Paranoia Agent in many ways. And that's that resolving in that way seems so appropriate. And and going back to the quote that I started the context with, he saw this as finally telling the story he almost always wanted to tell or finally closing the loop on the style of filmmaking that he almost worked through in order to adapt the film, adapt the novel that inspired him in the first place. Okay, Michael. So, I mean, we, we've kind of got quite surprisingly emotional there about the final few moments of this and how this perfectly closes the loop on all of his films and how this is the perfect Satoshi Kon moment. Um, but considering all of that, how does it slot into the rest of his work in your ranking of them? Let's move on to the popularity contest. So I think I've almost ranked these in different orders for every episode. <laughs> I haven't actually <laughs> double-checked every time because they're all so close in my estimations and re-watching them has almost just cemented them as being almost on a par with one another. But Steph, as the other person going into this with you know, pre-baked opinions on Khan, what's your final ranking, if you can even do that? Oh. Yeah, because I think last week we got into what episodes of Paranoia Agent would you rank as well. So we'll try not to do that again. But um, yeah, I think this one has definitely gone up in my estimations from the last time I watched it, just from that benefit of seeing this kind of, um, of seeing Con working through these ideas and that culmination in this film. Um. So I guess it would have to be kind of top tier. I mean, they're they're really not ranked because I like all of them. They're not kind of ranked as in the last one is is bad. But I guess I mean, Perfect Blue is still up there as I think the favorite. Um, but then maybe yeah, Paprika and Paranoia Agent coming in close second, and then. I think I had Tokyo Godfathers and then Millennium Actress. Um, but yeah, I mean, looking back, this one kind of raises those other ones up as well in in the context of seeing this. So yeah. And maybe that'll change in like a month as well once I've like sat with it for longer. But I think that's my final final ranking. It's just so hard. So this was always my least favourite. Um, probably because, you know, I was young and I didn't like the fact that it was the most popular one. I'm sorry, I'll put my hand up. I was such a um, gatekeeper-y con hipster at one point. But watching it as we just have, it gives it such power. But does that mean that it's only good when watched in context? It's a, it's a big question. But also, uh, as, we, as we said when we set out, the reason why I chose Satoshi Kon is that he never made a bad film um, and his TV series is excellent as well. So it's almost arbitrary to put them in order for me. But Perfect Blue is up top. I think I would still put Paranoia, Paranoia Agent second. 
maybe Millennium Actress, Paprika, Tokyo Godfathers. But that's with the understanding that really they're all four star and above films. Um, there isn't a bad one in the bunch. But really the most important opinion on this is yours, Jake, as the complete newcomer. Yes, but I don't know how valuable that is because I think compared to other films that we've covered on this podcast, these ones merit the the multiple watch so much more. Um, and uh, the more we do this, the more I think uh, a redux of this entire series in a year's time <laughs> could have value. Um, I am sticking with where I was last week. Uh, I think Paranoia Agent is still my favourite. Um, and I think that that's a, a, a key word, like favourite there, because it manages to be so impressive but so enjoyable at the same time. And maybe that's why I just put it very slightly above Perfect Blue. And Perfect Blue has so much power for me because it was obviously the first one and no one's, nothing can ever take that away. And I think I'd slot in Paprika just underneath those two. And then Millennium Actress and Tokyo Godfathers. And as you say, Michael, they're all very good. And I will very happily go back and do these all again. Can we definitively say best soundtrack? Paprika. Mm. Paprika is the soundtrack that definitely feels most in line with the film itself. <laughs> what do you but think, people? I just can never get that right <laughs> out of my head. So, I mean, that's my favourite. But this soundtrack, when it properly kicks in, it's so good and it works so well. And, yeah, you have that kind of weirdness um, of Susan Muhirasawa being on, like, Millennium Actress. But then it really works in this one and it really, it really kind of raises it up. And it's on Spotify. It's the only Hirasawa album on spotify i think so we can crank up Amazing. the the parade every day <laughs> those wonderful um, vocaloid sounds uh, michael now that you're no longer an anime gatekeeper um and you've watched all of these in order have you changed your feelings towards khan at all has has a new director formed in your mind maybe not a new, well when we started this series, or at least when we talked about doing this series, we chose Satoshi Kon because all of his films are great, and he has the international renown and standing of a Miyazaki or a Takahata. So we could use the format that we've developed with Ghibliotech and approach it for a chronology. I didn't really, until we watched them all side by side, realise that they all built towards this grand arc of a narrative stylistically in terms of his experimentation in terms of his filmmaking vision i didn't realize that we were actually telling a story all the way through watching as a bystander as a, as a filmmaker you know expanding the horizons of their style with every film i always saw these films as four individual films that worked incredibly well on their own merits because that's probably how i saw them but if there's anything like a final statement on these films and paranoia agent that we've watched is that while he was making something original every time, he was still building towards something. And that body of work exists as a great masterpiece, as opposed to it being five five-star works in, in their own right. That's his contribution to anime. The whole thing. The whole damn thing. 
but that's not the end of our full chronology. We've still got one more episode to go. We do. And since we've been dropping these episodes across July into August, we have to mark the fact that it's ending around the 10th anniversary of Satoshi Kon's you know, very sad young death. So this final episode is our opportunity to open up the conversation. We've been calling it a mailbag episode all the way through because really we are just three, you know, three separate opinions out of the whole mass unconscious <laughs> delusional mind of cinema. And we'd love to hear from listeners about Satoshi Kon, your favourites, what, what he means to you, what the individual films mean to you. But also we do have a little bit of roundup to do. There's the little, the couple of years after Paprika where he was still working, he made a short film, he made you know, a, a good chunk of his next movie. We should talk about that. He made books that we may have something to talk about. So we do have unfinished business with Satoshi Kon that we'll cover next week in our mailbag tribute special. And if you want to keep up with us until then, you can email all of your Satoshi Kon thoughts to ghibli at little.studios.com or keep up with us on Twitter at Ghibliotech and Michael's over there at Michael J. Leader. You can follow Steph at underscore Steph Watts. And you can follow Jake at Jake H. Cunningham. Bibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. Our music is made by Anthony Ng, our artwork is by Sophie Moe, and Jamie Maisner is our audio wizard. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Steph Watts and Harold McShiel. Hi everyone, thank you for sticking through the credits. Now, Megumi Hayashibara, the voice of Atsuko and Paprika, is a huge voice actor in anime. She played Rei in Neon Genesis Evangelion, she's in Pokemon, she's in Cowboy Bebop, and so many more. But she actually began her voice acting career back in 1986 doing extra voices on Castle in the Sky. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.